Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. Today, we're going to start a little bit differently. And to this end, my online persona is known, and pretty well my real personality is very sarcastic. So when we come to subjects like this, I usually defer to Mark to talk about them, but I do not want there to be any miscommunication. I feel just as strongly in all these matters as he does. So I will now yield the floor to Mark. Thanks, Walker. For years, Phil Eklund has been including his contemptible essays along with his games. Over the course of his publishing history, he has glorified bloody and repressive colonialism while defaming Muslims, Jews, the East, whatever that means, Kant, climate science and climate scientists, academia, Indians, and he most recently suggested that there is no COVID pandemic and it is being used as cover for authoritarian governments for, well, why authoritarians would want to tank their own economies is a mystery to me, but here we are. In the past, I admit that I have personally been complicit in spreading his vile revisionism, defending my praise of Pax Renaissance on the grounds that I tried to call out its glaring rulebook problems. But it shamefully took this latest bout of COVID misinformation to realize that I was nonetheless giving oxygen to dangerous, harmful nonsense. No longer. To their credit, Ion Games Design, Eklund's current publisher, recently announced that, quote, we will not continue to publish essays or non-factual footnotes in our printed or living rules, end quote. We applaud this decision, and we think it is a step in the right direction. Somewhat relatedly, comments that Daniele Tashini has made in the Italian press came to prominence in English. In short, he says that accommodation and inclusion in the board game hobby is the responsibility of minorities to bust their way in, not the responsibility of those with power to make space. Additionally, on Facebook, he defended his use of ethnic slurs directed at people of African descent, ostensibly under the guise of anti-racism. We categorically reject both views as harmful and toxic to the hobby. To their credit, Boarded Dice, a publisher of some of Tashini's games, has said that they, quote, will not consider any future designs of his for consideration, end quote. Hans and Gluck will not reprint Tashini's games and will donate proceeds of existing print runs to as-of-yet unspecified anti-racist causes. Both men, Eklund and Tashini, when given the opportunity to reckon with the reported harm that their comments have caused, doubled down on the rhetoric and refused to grapple with the consequences of their actions. Let us be clear, this is not about moral superiority, this is not about politics, this is not about character. We do not know, and quite frankly do not care, what is in their hearts. That is beside the point. This is instead about the demonstrable harms of the actions of people with power. Ours is a beautiful hobby, but one that has serious problems in terms of representation and inclusion. In a market where there are more quality games released in a year than we could ever review in a decade, there is no reason to amplify the voices and work of people who are contributing to a harmful and toxic atmosphere. We will not let clever game design trump damage to a community we love and wish to see grow and get better. We do not reject the possibility of change, but as of now, you will not hear us discuss their games again. We, as a community, need to emphasize that this is not primarily about whether or not we're going to play a certain game. More broadly, the emphasis is not on some authors or publishers, especially with what they have done or said, reveals how little attention they deserve. It is more important to show that these problems of hate and exclusion are still happening, and that we will not tolerate it. Very well said, Walker. So, with that in mind, shall we talk about games? Let's talk about some games. So in this podcast, we're going to continue with talking about the game we played, we reviewed exactly one year ago. Then we're going to talk about some games we played this week. And then on to our topic of the week, which is Death of the Rulebook. I think Colonel Mustard killed it in the library. Yes, with a garrot wire. I don't know, I don't remember that in Clue. Do you have a, a more hardcore version of Clue? I did. I had I had the orphan version of Clue. Um, <laughs> so... Exactly one year ago today, we reviewed a game called Warpgate. And you can tell me if I'm wrong. Warpgate plays a little bit like Civilization, where you're playing a bunch of action cards down on a little track. They don't slide around like they do in Civ, but they get more powerful as they go along the track. Well, we should specify Civ and New Dawn as opposed to any of the uh, version of other Civs. Correct. But, but yeah, that, that card management thing is kind of sort of there. Uh, Warpgate has a little bit more of deck management. One of the things that I really like about Warpgate is the tension of knowing that in your deck of action cards, there are only a certain number of opportunities to score points, and you have to make use of them when you can, because all the cards are multi-use, and the scoring conditions are sometimes rather tricky, and so you have to set yourself up to score those things. Warpgate is by Artem Nichapurov, who has put out Guards of Atlantis, and Trickshot, which I just got in the mail and cannot wait to play once I'm able to play actual board games with people again. And the upcoming Guards of Atlantis 2, of course. 
I really, really like Warp Gate. I pulled it out spontaneously a couple weeks ago to play the solo version because the solo version is, is really accessible and although it doesn't feel exactly like the core game, feels close enough to it. I love the card management. I love its kind of three and a half X kind of approach. It's one of those stripped down sci-fi games that gives you enough of the taste of the bigger titans like Twilight Imperium or Eclipse, but without getting bogged down and still feeling like a really brisk, really tightly designed Euro where you're really competing with each other and care- carefully managing the board, but still getting lots of nice toys. Anyway, I really enjoy Warpgate. I wish I got it to the table more often. And if I if I remember correctly, one of the cards you get to play is your like sort of your your races unique ability right so which makes all the different sides different correct uh, in the tactics deck yes in the action deck no everybody has their own special ability and everyone has uh you know text that they acquire and more tactics that they start but everybody starts with an asymmetric tactic and that can really change i also i mean since you brought it up i also really really like the battle system i find it super super clever and just the right combination of determinism and chaos as i say i really enjoy warp gate uh, I've played it a couple times over the past year, but I, I really wish it could enter more steadily into the rotation. It's a very clever design with a lot going for it. And that is the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now, onto the games we played this week. So, a little bit of disclaimers here, Mark. This is a, a game that is still on Kickstarter, so the rules are sort of up in the air. So, we played a game that, you know, the rules might change. This is in no way trying to promote this game or anything, but we got to play Darwin's Journey. And what a journey it was. <laughs> we turned out that the real heroes were the friends we made along the way. That's right. This is a, a fantastic little worker placement game where you get to sort of improve or give your workers skills that allow them to go to different action spaces. And not only that, you sort of have this crew deck. So you're, you're kind of turning your workers into these crew cards that you have in your hand. And then you get to play them for abilities and you're sending potion stamps around and you're collecting animals because they're uh endangered and you're serve you're you're nah. uh, saving no this well, isn't no no this no. isn't about conservation this is definitely pre-conservation i i, I know i was trying to make it sound nice mark <laughs> what did you think of darwin's journey mark i enjoyed it in a number of ways i got very strong barrage vibes which is unsurprising because it's designed by simone luciani and nestor mangone Simone Luciani was also involved in designing Barrage. One of the key things that reminded me of Barrage was there was this same idea of at the end of every round, everyone's going to score points. And in our game, that was actually a significant lack of points. But in order to score to maximum effect, you had to be far enough along on a track. The difference between Darwin's Journey and Barrage was that one of the things that I really like about Barrage is it all comes together in terms of producing power. At the end of the day, it's pretty much entirely about producing power, and that's where you're going to get your points. In Darwin's Journey, there was, you know, not quite as scattered and chaotic and all over the place as you might expect from something like even Steffenfeld designs that I kind of enjoy, like Bonfire. But there was still a lot more going on in terms of, well, you get some points from over here and some points from over there. I was very disappointed by the crew cards. They felt entirely irrelevant and kind of like a a misdirection because the, the demands seemed so onerous and the benefits so paltry when compared to everything else. It's this idea that you have these workers and if you get them the right qualifications, you play this crew card and that's them. That is the person that they are. Thematically, I thought it was a waste because what you do is you just cash them in for a one-time bonus and then the card is face down for the rest of the game. And also when it was like, well, if you get this precise combination of recipes, you get this tiny bonus, or uh, you could go do one of any half a dozen other things that were easier and seemed to give you more immediate bonuses. I don't know. What did you think of the character element? True, but the other bonus that we might not have played or thought about or played more into is the fact, remember that all the actions had that banner above them, and as soon as you got the worker up to that level, you started to get, you know, even more bang for your buck when you went to these spaces, so maybe that's the extra payoff on top of it. Well, that part was cool. There's this idea that if you have a certain number of qualification seals, then there are these action spaces that they have access to that are more powerful, and that part was great, and that was worth it. It was absolutely worth it to go to the effort of upgrading your workers for that purpose. But it wasn't like the character cards particularly synergized with any of the good action spaces anyway. You might want to give a character an extra yellow seal and maybe give them a green seal so they can do the yellow action really well. And if your green worker's already gone and done something, you can have this worker serve as the green worker. But like all the crew cards were like, they need to have two yellow, two red, and a blue. And it's like, what the... I, I mean, I would never do that organically. I would never really 
well, never. I played once. It just seemed like a Herculean lift, and I was just a little bit disappointed because that was one of the elements that I was looking forward to. I did like the other aspect of the upgrades, but the character part felt, you know, a little ancillary, a little bit like wasted effort. I'm definitely looking forward to playing it again. Had a lot going on. All sorts of little mini-games, area control, and and path manipulation, and worker placement. All sorts of fun stuff. Looks To me, it looks fantastic. Looking forward to playing it again. I did appreciate the theme a little bit more than I thought I would. You know, it, it's the I made a joke in our Pledge of Indifference show that this was perhaps the most Euro-iest of all Euro themes. Follow behind a great man of history and try to impress him and, you know, go along his footsteps. But in this case, it, it actually felt like I was doing something under my own steam because you find these animal samples and you send them to the museum. And then sometimes in a lovely little bit of reversal, you can go then steal things back from the museum, which I thought was cute. And that actually made me feel like I was doing something myself instead of just watching Darwin going and doing something. True. And the fact that, you know, you sort of get the feeling that everyone's, you know, uh, looking at these or investigating these islands at the same time and you're sort of rushing back to the museum. So you get the honor of presenting the world with these findings of particular animals type thing. You know what I'm saying? Yes, and it was good that there was that element, because other than that, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of player interaction to be had, but whatever. It's a worker placement. You don't tend to have satisfying worker uh, player interaction as a rule. And I felt that the one thing that I really hope that they iron out, and I spent an unreasonable amount of time complaining about it, was whoever starts out in the last player position really gets hosed in that first round because there's just not enough room for them to go anywhere usefully. And I'd just like to point out, I complained like crazy, and you and Warmbor were like, oh yeah, there goes Mark complaining again. And then when it was Warmboy's turn, and he was the last player in turn order in the second round, he was like, huh, I see what you mean now. Vindication. Vindication. And that is Darwin's Journey. We also played a game of equal weight, and of equal seriousness, and of equal scientific accuracy... Namely, Dinosaur Tea Party. This is a game that Walker told me about last week, and I had to go see for myself. This is by Restoration Games. This is a redo of a Parker Brothers game called Who's It, which, uh, as they acknowledge in the rulebook, had some unfortunate racial and ethnic stereotypes going is on. It, who, who's It or Who's It or Guess Who? It's Who's or It. They, were they named both? Who is it? Who's It? Okay. It's Who's It. No, Guess Who is a different game. And by the way, I'm getting okay. dragged online for my criticism of Guess Who. Which is entirely unreasonable. People are defending it saying like, well, of course there are only five women in Guess Who. Because you will limit all the distinguishing characteristics to five characters only. Which of course misses the point. When you regard being a woman as a distinguishing characteristic, you've already missed the point. But anyway, enough politics. Let us talk of dinosaurs and a tea party. Uh, I also accused Walker of burying the lead. Because in Dinosaur Tea Party in the rulebook, there's a recipe for cucumber sandwiches. And any game... With the style and panache to, to recommend cucumber sandwiches for a gaming session is after my own heart. I used to, when I had war councils back in Massachusetts, make cucumber sandwiches for my guests as we would play Successors or Here I Stand or whatever game we were playing or La Révolution Française. And so that immediately charmed me. You had to give them something to keep them awake, Mark. <laughs> ah. And the artwork. Oh my goodness, the artwork. These dinosaurs at a tea party... I could. I, I told you, Mark. I, I tried to explain to you how fantastic this game was. I am so glad that you liked it. Even the game gameplay itself. I'm not saying it's a super deep, exciting game, but it, I think it will lead to all sorts of fun and silliness for sure. Well, it's weird because a lot of the fun and silliness I think goes away in the online version because the rulebook really encourages you to engage in some light role play. That you are these dinosaurs at a tea party and with the sort of comedy of manners element of it, which is entirely stripped from the board game arena implementation, which, yes, has some quality of life improvements. You get to mouse over things, and it'll immediately gray out all the ineligible characters, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I, I, I really, I tried to get into that, because I noticed that when we, we loaded our games, some characters always lie, some characters always say no, and Janine was the dinosaur that always lied in the tableau. And I tried to tried to start off in the chat saying, oh, that Janine, am I right? And nobody took the bait. So here I was engaged in a pure logic puzzle. It felt like studying for the LSATs, honestly, to a certain extent. That's not really a criticism. I would much rather play it in person, is all I'm saying. 
True. And I think in person, it's going to lead to a little bit more pressure because with the online version, you just sort of sit there and puzzle it out. It's like, you, like you said, you get to mouse over all the different attributes and sort of figure out what's what and then look at your own character. That's the kind of the gaming mechanism I love, sort of like incognito or mastermind, right? Where you can see what you've got, you can see what's out there and sort of ask the key question. And then I think in person, there'll be a little bit more time pressure. You don't, won't have that much. And, you know, there'll be some people who want to game it out. And, you know, I have to win this dinosaur tea party and, you know, not <laughs> care about the atmosphere on the table while everyone waits for them to figure it out. But I think in general, I think it will move it around a lot more. And and there is a way to, to like, intensely, I don't want to say game it out, but it, there is there could be some deeper strategy there. Like, if you start a turn and no one has any answers guessed at all, you don't want to start in hard on one particular person because you're going to make a mistake and now you've just helped everyone else. So you sort of want to either spread your questions out or ask one or two and then and then purposely fail. So then when it does get back around to you, then you might have a, a better chance with more answers on on more people. I couldn't help but observe that in our game, you rushed to an early lead. The goal of the game is to get to three points, or sugar cues, as they say. And you got two points before anyone else got any. And I was very disappointed that the rest of the table didn't internalize what I thought was relatively obvious. Namely, if somebody's rushed out to two points, you want to ask questions of that player. You want to reveal information of that player because that information doesn't help them, but it helps everybody else at the table. Instead, people were just going off and doing whatever, which is which is fine. I understand that. But again, in a table situation, you could give people a little nudge and say, well, maybe we might want to go in this other direction. Part of that was the implementation. Part of that also, it's worth stressing, was that this was asynchronous. And I'll have a little bit more to say about it, a, a, asynchronicity later, I think, once I've had a little bit more experience with it. But I, I can definitely say so far, I do not enjoy asynchronous games nearly so much as synchronous games. So true. And that is Dinosaur Tea Party. And then we both got to go back and play a show favorite, which is Calamella. This is one that we streamed online. And it shows that the designer is fantastic because he even came in and helped out with some with some questions. Uh, great times were had by all. This is a fantastic game of putting out discs. You have a, a limited number of discs you're going to put out for the whole game, and you put them in between two actions, and you get to do both actions, and then other players will put out discs, or you could put them on as well. And as soon as a second disc is put on a stack, then they do the action, and then every disc underneath that one does an action as well until it gets to a number. I'm not going to go through the whole rule book, but anyway, it's that type of game. You get action cards to boost up your your turn and you're trying to do these area majorities that are all sorts of different uh point scoring values it's just an overall fantastic game i've been accused of having a definite type of game that i will almost always enjoy fair cop clever action selection coupled with area majority i'm almost always going to be down for call it the el grande mold i guess Despite the fact that they're very different games, it's the same kind of idea. There's a clever action selection coupled with their majority. And it was an extremely close and extremely tense game. Every placement mattered. Every disc mattered. Every cube mattered. And I really like it when it comes down to the wire like that. It was great to revisit one of our perennial favorite Euro games, and it was a great time. Yeah, I think it's one of those games where I, th I think one of the key key strategies might be to make sure you score where where no one else is scoring, right? If you see an opportunity to quickly trigger scoring where no one else is there, then that's the opportunity you need to take. Because the game, I think, will work out relatively close the whole t every time almost, because it's uh, really close scoring. You're either scoring one, two, or three points, and a lot of the times everyone is scoring those, so you're all sort of trudging along at the same pace. So if you can trigger an area that no one else will score but you, I think that is definitely the winning way to go. Well, timing matters a lot. That's the other clever element of Kalamala because the scoring is going to happen in discrete increments and you know exactly when everything is going to score. And if you can trigger scoring at just the right time on that thing at just the right time, then absolutely you're going to profit. I don't know that necessarily, you know, being where no one else is, is is obviously the way to go. It's like any other area majority contest. If you can get a lot of points with minimal effort, you're absolutely going to do well. It doesn't matter whether you're the only one there with six cubes or whether you've got six cubes there and someone else has one. If I'm scoring two points off my one and you're scoring three points off your six, I'm probably all told doing better than you are. So it's very situationally dependent. But yes, being able to, and that, that, that's what sunk me. One of the main reasons why I struggled in that game was I missed out on the first three or four, I think, scoring opportunities. 
I was deceiving myself into thinking that I was setting myself up for future success, uh, but such is the story of my life. But I agree with you, there's lots of opportunities for clever outmaneuvering and, like anything else, getting maximum return for minimal investment. Such a great game. That's Calamala. We also got to return to another show favorite, although more uh, a more recent one, uh, 2020's Game of the Year Cosmic Frog. We also streamed this, and we streamed it with Jim Fowley, who is the mad genius at Devious Weasel Games who designed Cosmic Frog, as well as a guy by the name of Neelan, who my understanding is, I, I have difficulty reading this, he's on a pod, a podcast, you say? Yes. That's where a couple of idiots yell into microphones about board games and think they know what they're talking about. That sounds like a total waste of time, Walker. 100% agreed. Anyway, despite that, Neilan seemed like a great guy. Uh, Cosmic Frog is a wonderful, marvelous game. This game was interesting in that, and this is this is an indication of how flexible the game is, most of the conflict and most of the combat happened at the beginning of the game rather than at the end. We've commented before in many groups, including our own, we tend to have this sort of bias towards building up, building up, building up, and then having a massive conflagration near the end. And we criticize games that kind of lead you down that path because it feels very scripted sometimes and a little bit stodgy. Cosmic Frog, on the other hand, is very freeform. It feels a lot more sandboxy than its nature would imply. Do you want to go straight after another frog right away? You can do that. And that's what I did. My first turn of the game, I landed on Walker's face and uh, it was great. It worked out well for me. In the short term, uh, Walker got his revenge later on. It was not pleasant. I did not enjoy that part. But I really do appreciate the fact that amongst all its other virtues, its incredible charm, the beautiful artwork, the incredibly bizarre but appealing theme, Cosmic Frog lets you play the game the way you want to play the game. And so long as you're willing to accept the fact that someone might literally jump onto your head and rip out the contents of your gullet and swallow it themselves you do have a surprising amount of freedom to just go off and, and, and do your own thing. And I have, you have to appreciate a design that gives you that degree of latitude, especially when it has that potential for direct conflict. Yeah, it's got this huge, this gigantic stacking of press your luck. You're, you're like, how long are you going to stay on the shard? How long are you going to sit there with a full gullet? And then on top of that, the how long do you think this game is going to last, which played into the game that we played because we have these giant meteors hurling down and destroying the shard that we're fighting on. And uh, you flip over some tiles, and if a certain number flip up, then the game is over. And this game ended fairly quickly, yes. and you sort of have to take all of this into consideration when you're deciding how quickly you're going to try to get these shards into your vault. It just layers all the decision with a sense of consequence and urgency and tension that really helps everyone getting involved in the game, even above and beyond the fact that we're already engaged by how delightfully whimsical the theme and the artwork is. Yeah, Cosmic Frog is always a success, I really enjoy it. I need to play it more. The physical version is so beautiful. The tabletop implementation app is really, really well done. It was done by a fan of the game, and it's very successful. And it's been updated regularly over the course of months. There are some variants that Jim Felly is is has been introducing to the game, like Mental Combat and a different combat system that I have yet to try and, and would like to report on and get back to you. And that is our 2020 Game of the Year, Cosmic Frog. Now, on the same sort of strain, as I said, with the random and unpredictable ending of the game, I got to play Yokohama again. I love Yokohama, and it's got the same sort of, we're not quite sure when this game is going to end. It has several different things that have to trigger, or several different things that can trigger, that will end the game. It's all these different, you know, paths or buildings you're going to put on, or, you know, if enough cubes get in certain areas. And so you sort of got this constant pressure. You can sort of see these things slowly developing and you got to get these things done and try to maximize your points. Cause at the beginning of the game, you have this whole thing laid out for you and you come up with this fantastic plan hmm. and it's, and it's, and it's great. And you said, okay, now I have everything in place and I'm about to game over. <laughs> score it and you say gee i that would have been great if i had one more 20 more turns and then and then it's over did someone upset your delicate plans walker uh but kind of in some places <laughs> I, I think that first game went well the second game we'll see how it goes but it's it's got this really interesting I've, we've talked about it before interesting worker placement sort of building mini routes and then using those cubes to to amplify your actions and your buildings which also count to make those actions more powerful and you're delivering goods and you're you know 
putting out people in the church or selling commodities or getting tech. There's so much, so many different paths. And it's not as though there's one, one way to win. And so that's what I love about Yokohama. You can try a different strategy every game because, because it, I'm not saying it's a short game, but the fact that you have no idea when it's going to end means that there's no, I don't think, definite way to play. Yeah, if you like Rudiger Dorn's Istanbul, no slight on Rudiger Dorn, but if you want something like Istanbul with that sort of interesting, almost worker placement kind of pathy element, and you want something with more elements going on, with a little bit more latitude and with, with more rules grit anyway, then Yokohama is definitely a good candidate. Yeah, this is a game designed by Hadashi Hayashi, and it's put out by Tasty Minstrel Games. I had a couple of experiences in space this week beyond Cosmic Frog. I played another game of Quantum, and it's appropriate that we talked about Warpgate at the top of the show, because uh, to my mind, both Warpgate and Quantum are really, really good at giving you a distilled sense of an in-your-face science fiction sort of vaguely aping some of the 4X stuff without feeling very much like a 4X stuff. But in Quantum, you get sort of special powers, and you have to worry about expanding your territory all the while fighting. And it's got this marvelously clever dice system where the value of the die is the number of spaces that it gets to move That's as a spaceship. And in co- when combat rolls, you want lower results, not higher. So the faster it goes, the worse it is in combat, but the slower it goes, the better it is in combat. I do enjoy playing Quantum. There are a couple of minor problems with it that fortunately have not come up in my recent playings. One of them is there are a couple of degenerate openings. Uh, there's, there's a number of circumstances where if you have just the right roll at the start of the game, you can get a point on your first turn and there's practically nothing anyone can do to stop you. And every time I, I start a game of Quantum or I load it up on Board Game Arena, which is how I played it this time, I dread someone getting that roll. But it hasn't happened recently, so yay for that. And there is a a funny element that is kind of underscored by the Board Game Arena implementation. They say right at the top, they basically say, second place is the first loser, so gang up on the winner or don't whine at us. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. That's kind of sort of how they phrase it. And it really does rely on the rest of the table to balance everybody. There's no catch-up mechanism. There's nothing to constrain the leader. There's a little bit of a rich-get-richer problem, so the only way to balance it is for people who are not winning to exert their force. Uh, But fortunately unlike where some other games would fail at this point, there is a virtue in winning fights. You do get something out of winning those fights, so it's not like you're just wasting your time constraining the leader, because that would ultimately be degenerate. Quantum is very sadly out of print. It is a very, very solid game at a very good weight and time point with quality decision-making and fun stuff to do and charming components. It's a shame that it's not in print. I hope that the designer, Eric Zimmerman, is able to get something like it out again, whether rethemed or a different version or even just a, a, a new printing of Quantum, because I really do think that it, it fills a very solid niche in my collection anyway, and I'm glad to have it around, because under these particular constraints, I had a relatively pro-conflict group that wanted to play something very quick and very snappy, and so Quantum was an easy recommendation, and I always have a good time with it. And lastly for me, I got to play a game called City of the Big Shoulders. I need to preface what I'm about to say with all complaints are to be addressed to aircanada.ca. <laughs> all right, this is designed by Raymond Chandler III and published by Parallel Games. And this is uh, sold as a Euro-type 18xx game. And I will sort of just say I will think about this the same way I think about Spirit Island. I can say that I understand that it has great mechanics and I can see that people enjoy it and I can see where they might irk out some fun out of this game that (laughs) might be left from my soul as it sucked all the fun away. But I, I don't think I would want to play city of the big shoulders ever again. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm glad that I played it once. I I now understand that I do not ever want to play an 18 XX game. Um, (laughs) Uh, I'd rather go do math class because that's what it is. I, I, I got to listen to people on, on my headset, mathing out their turns, figuring out how many points they're going to get because, because the third player had 20% of, of this company and, and player B had 10% and they only had 15%, but then they could get three more shit. And then, oh, Mark. 
Mark, oh, Mark. <laughs> Not a game for me. Look, and, and some people might love that. You know, some people love math. Some people love doing that. They love working out all the all the numbers and, and getting the most out of it, but it's just not a game for me. City of the Big Shoulders. I want to try it, just as I've been meaning to get back into 18xx games. Well, I was never in 18xx games, but I've had a copy of 1846 by Tom Lehman on my shelf for a while, and just before the pandemic hit, I was considering getting some game people willing to go and give it a try. Uh, uh, but and if people always say, oh, there are great ways to play 18xx games online. I'm like, no, that is a great way to guarantee that I will not get the necessary enjoyment out of it. Because very much like you, I sometimes enjoy these kinds of margin calls. I think of the Cube Rails games, especially like Irish Rails or Imperial or other games of that ilk or Wabash Cannonball slash Chicago Express, where it's like, hmm, one more share will give me a little bit more control over here. And this will give me the 10% more than this other person. But at that point, it's very coarse. It's not very mathy as compared to your standard 18xx or, from what I understand, City of the Big Shoulders. But it's always a question of balance. I don't know where I'm going to land on that balance at any given point, and I would very much like to try these things more and get a little bit more into it. I am told that train games are the superior type of games and that anyone who disagrees is wrong, and that has to be correct. So it's true it had some fantastic mechanisms mark where you had this hand of of three action tiles and then you'd put them up on your line and if other if other people took them you got some money if you take them you get the money and the action it sort of had this food chain magnet feel to it because you could buy these uh sellers i guess they were called which made all your goods when you sold them more money and then you got these managers which gave you these other abilities and then you had to hire these workers or you could automate the workers which made them even more powerful had this interesting uh system at the top of the board where you're buying goods and you could sort of uh steal the goods from other players so they had to pay more money for them all of that was good it was like i said just the mathing out of Mm. the shares and that is just not not fun for me fair enough i i should just note as a as a capper it is, City of the Big Shoulders is somewhat controversial amongst the train gamers of my acquaintance. Some people really like it, and they, they say, just as you do, it's it's like an interesting Euro 18xx hybrid. And some 18xx players say, no, 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 there's no point in playing this. You should just go play one of the quicker 18xx's because City of the Big Shoulders has some problems. And again, I like many great controversies, I would like to have an opinion. But if I ever try City of the Big Shoulders, it will not be with you. And then on the same note where I just talked about Food Chain Magnet, Mark's already known about this, but I didn't know about it. There's a fantastic online Im- implementation on Board Game Core, which is exactly how it's saying, uh, uh, type it out, is that exactly how I say it, boardgamecore.net. Check it out. They do all a bunch of, they have four different splatter games there, and the implementation is fantastic. I'm uh, playing a game this week, and I'm loving it. And on that note, Mark, when you play Food Chain Magnet, this is just like sort of like a, a friendly reminder. You, you, you should now, because I didn't realize this, you should check and see which milestones that you are playing with. <laughs> Apparently there are different sets and you might just play slightly different knowing which set of milestones that you are playing with. Just throwing that out there. Not that it actually happened to me. I'm actually impressed at your level of food chain magnet familiarity where you didn't have to remind yourself as to what milestones were out. You immediately just hit the ground running, remembering what milestones you wanted to go for. You fell victim to your own expertise. Apparently. Well, finally for me, I got to play a game called A Billion Suns Interstellar Fleet Battles. This is the follow-up game from Mike Hutchison of Planet Smasher Games, who designed Gaslands, which is absolutely one of my all-time favorite tabletop miniatures games. And this was published by Osprey Games, who sent us a review copy. And I got to play with the uh, Gamma Tabletop Simulator module. There's now an official one that is now up to date with different and better graphics and more up-to-date rules. But we were absolutely able to make it work with uh, the the up-to-date rules. A Billion Suns is fascinating, and I'm definitely going to be playing some more. It doesn't have the immediate visceral appeal that Gaslands does, but quite frankly, almost no game does. You know, at the point where you're saying you can play a miniatures game with Hot Wheels, that, that, that pretty much sells you. And in fact, one of the daunting barriers to entry for A Billion Suns is you can realistically expect to have a full set of literally over a dozen different types of miniatures for each side. Because 
any space game, or certainly any tabletop miniature space game, usually tries to grapple with the theme and tries to make it feel spacey in some way. And I'm not referring to UN spacey, which is to say the segment of the armed forces in which characters in the Macross series tended to be members of, at least until Macross Frontier, when they tended to be members of private military contractors. But that's a separate matter entirely. Up until about 2047, they all tended to be members of UN space. Moving on, usually this relates to some element of vector movement or inertia or momentum. A Billion Suns does not do that. Ships have facing and they move and they just move and move forward and they, they, they go wherever they want to go. The thing that makes a billion suns feel spacey is they reckon with the serious consequences of faster than light travel. Namely, if you need more troops, you can have more troops. They will get there. You can deploy an effectively infinite number of troops so long as you're willing to pay for them. There's no army building at the start of the game. You just summon more units as you need them because they warp in from wherever they happen to be elsewhere. And this, as an auction gamer, is fascinating. You have to get the mission objectives done with the minimum expenditure possible based on what's going on. So yeah, you can have 17 cruisers show up, a battleship, a dreadnought, and five carriers with full fighter wings. Better make it worthwhile, because at the end of the day, you're going to be expected to justify that level of commitment and expense. It's really, really interesting. And it really suits my natural game style, which is to say very conservative, very cheapskate, saying, okay, I'm going to score two points off of this. What's the minimum expenditure I need to get that done? All right. Now, the, the, the converse of that is that it's possible to overcommit in the first round and end up in a serious problem where you're not able to score well enough. But it's overall, it, it's a fascinating way to implicate a whole bunch of auction mechanisms into a tabletop miniatures game while respecting the theme of space and the infinitude of space. It also has a really interesting set of objectives that also feel very spacey. You might be delivering cargo to some from some planet. You might be curing uh, a station of some weird space disease. You might be hunting space whales and space kraken. Or you might be engaged in counter-espionage. You randomly generate these objectives before every scenario. And each of them have little sub-mechanisms and some weird vicissitudes with respect to how they interact with various other components. This is both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength because you get a tremendous sense of variety and a tremendous sense of character of the individual missions. And no two missions are going to play out the same. But by the same token, it ends up being a little bit cumbersome and a little bit opaque. So you're going to have three different objectives. One objective is like, okay, first scan this thing, then take this thing over here, then pull this card, then do this thing, and then you get some points based on what's on the card. This other thing is, okay, go and have more presence here of things that don't scan, but do this other thing, and then reveal this card, but you can reveal from the deck if not, and if it's at least high enough, then you score based on how many tokens you have. Like, stuff like that. And you have three different sets of those, and honestly... It was just bearable. It was just on the verge of things that I was able to do, but it kind of obscured a little bit of the thematic element of the objectives. I am hoping that with a little bit more familiarity with the objectives, after your second, third, fourth game, you see some of the objectives, again, the cognitive load goes down, and you're better able to see the scoring possibilities. Because like any other good auction game, you can't really internalize the benefits and burdens unless you can easily internalize the scoring opportunities. And that level of opacity is a little bit unfortunate in what is, again, effectively an auction element married on to a very satisfying tabletop miniatures game of Pew Pew. So I very much enjoyed it. It It was a fascinating set of design principles. And I'm keen to try out the solo mode. There's a beta solo mode. And again, I'd want to be able to play with actual miniatures in real life. And the only way I'm going to do with that, do that is with a solo mode for the near future. And I want to try the new mod. And I want to try more mission objectives. It's a fascinating design and really interesting. If I were more into kitpatching my own minis, if I were more into... I've seen things on Facebook where people are taking popsicle sticks, literally, and producing beautiful science fiction miniatures. I am not that guy. Uh, but <laughs> there are paper ships that you can cut out that look very cool. And I'd be willing to try those. And so I, I really think it's worth the effort that I'm going to put into it, and I'm planning on putting a lot more effort into it. But so far, I have never been disappointed by any amount of time I've spent with Mike Hutchinson's miniatures rule sets. And so I'm very much looking forward to future experiences with A Billion Suns, Interstellar Fleet Battles by Osprey. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Quickly, there's a game coming out, Mark. I'm gonna, I'll say the name and you can tell me what it's about. <laughs> Terraforming Mars, Ares Expedition. I'm going to guess that it's, well, the, both Mars and Ares are in it. So I'm going to guess that it's about Greco-Roman mythology. 
True, I'm sure you're saying that to be sarcastic, because you probably know it's a Terraforming Mars expansion, right? I'm not familiar with the sarcasm of which you speak. But but this would be wrong, Mark. It is not an expansion. It is a separate game that has the exact same name as all their expansions. They decided to give this name Terraforming Mars colon Ares Expedition because they don't want to be completely confusing. I'm, It'll be wait, wait, wait. A, I'm further confused. Are we Terraforming Mars or Terraforming a colon? I have no idea. Don't terraform my colon. One of those sounds more dangerous, but one of those sounds more unpleasant. And this is going to be a card game that removes the actual map for terraforming Mars, I guess. So it's just be a card-driven game. So it's just like terraforming Mars. Can you can you sense the the excitement <laughs> in my voice? I just thought it was odd that they would call it. You know, it's we've had this we had this problem just recently, right? Because I've heard online that people uh it's Whistle Stop and Whistle Mountain and mm-hmm. people think that oh, I don't want to play Whistle Mountain because it's just going to be like Whistle Stop, which I didn't like, but it's a completely different game and it's in that case this, you know, the trying to play off the franchise did not work and this one who knows if this will work because it's, you know, there's a the West Kingdom people do it all the time, so who knows if it works or doesn't work. <laughs> well, the West Kingdom people do it all the time. We just talked about 18xx games, which are absolutely the worst culprit of this. And Tiny in, Epic. Tiny Epic. In defense of Whistle Stop and Whistle Mountain, though, Whistle Mountain, the theme doesn't make sense without the whistles. Because you use whistles to build girders, and you use whistles to build machines, and you use whistles no, to save drowning Mark, men. Mark, well, that's that. We just don't see the lifeguards on the side. They're the ones with the whistles warning people that people are drowning. Oh my goodness! Like, didn't, didn't you read the rule book? How is it, Walker, that you're automatically able to improve the theme of so many games so immediately? <laughs> <laughs> and that is Terraforming Mars: Ares Expedition. So looking forward to it. Cough. As we all know, a healthy market involves lots and lots of vertical integration. And definitely no competition. So it was with great joy that I read the news that Asmodee purchased Philibert, which is the largest game retailer in France. So, I, you know, because Asmodee, I'm sure, was having difficulty finding a place to sell its games. And perhaps more to the point, they had to deal with, um, what's the word, other people. So now they don't have to do that. They can produce the games... Now, granted, other people have to actually manufacture it. Asmodee doesn't have a lock on that yet. But they have their own distribution network. And now they're going to have their own retail network. So isn't that great? Isn't that going to be great for the consumer somehow in a way that's mysterious to me? No, it's worked out so far for Fantasy Flight Games. I'm sure it'll work out great for everyone else. I'm sure we will profit just as well as Fantasy Flight Games' role-playing division. Wait, oh wait. Just as well as Fantasy Flight's Minister's division. Oh wait. And lastly for me, tomorrow there'll be a Kickstarter starting. It is... The Castles of Mad King Ludwig Collector's Edition. They did a great job with Suburbia. Now they're coming out with Castles of Mad King. If you are a fan of that game, I've only played it a couple times. Once online and once in real life. And would like to play it more. Check out this Collector's Edition. It looks fabulous. Yeah, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm really going to have to think long and hard on this because the market is definitely moving towards pay $100 US or more for a really, really, really gussied up light game that's enjoyable and engaging, but nothing really substantial. And sometimes that's what I want to do, and sometimes that's not what I want to do. And I'm going to have to decide which of these times it, it's going to be with Castles of Medicaid Ludwig. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to the topic of the week. Like I said, death of the rulebook. Mark, won't you tell me sort of what you thought when you suggested this topic, and then we'll see if any of my notes are useful. (laughs) Okay, so this is hopefully not going to be too gatekeeper-y, because I don't want to engage in gatekeeping, but I'm going to admit that this is unabashedly, for many of my observations and complaints, going to be a get-off-my-lawn type of series of complaints. What I'm not going to try to do is lean too much into everyone should learn the way that I learn, because that's a very understandable but dangerous and damaging impulse. And I know that it's certainly one that I had to fight when I was actually a teacher, right? You have to accept the fact that other people process information in different ways. But the way I think of it is... Video killed the radio star, and video is killing the rulebook. Because I, ha- I 
of the people that I know, I think I am the only one in our circle, of our extended circle, of the extended swag family in the swag extended universe, who all things being equal, if I'm told that I should learn a game, my first recourse is going to be the rulebook. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. I, I am 100% on, on the video market. I, I watch the video because mostly, like I've, I've said before, I want to get the gist of the game and sort of like the layout and how the turn sequence, turn sequence works and how it sort of evolves. And then as I'm reading the rule book, it just makes more sense because I've sort of, I can have a feeling about how the game works as opposed to starting at step one in the rule book. Well, sometimes, so so let's talk about this. We can talk about your specific way of processing information. It seems weird to me that you would want to use a video to get the gist and then read the rules afterwards because a video rules explanation, even at a very slow rate of reading, is going to take longer than actually reading the rulebook. And for me, when I want to get the gist first and then get down to the details, I just read the rulebook twice. I usually have to do that anyway. I usually end up having to read the rulebook once when I'm first separating up the pieces and figuring out what goes where and trying to organize things in advance of a first play. And very often, just the rate at which we get new games in, I do that usually at a week's remove before we play the thing for the first time. And I have to I have to refresh my memory, and so then I read the thing a second time. Maybe not as close to read the first time, but usually a, a, a full read. And that's how I process the information. What I don't understand... And I'm going to get later on to why I think it is actually sometimes problematic, not in a serious way, but in a mild way that video is supplanting rule books for rules explanation. Uh, I, I just, I fail to understand how it could be more time efficient because, because you have remarked in the past when I have been unfair to you, I fully admit, and criticizing your rules explanation or criticizing your inability to remember how various things work. You said, well, while I was watching the video, I was doing other things at the same time, which is a perfectly reasonable impulse. I do the same when watching the TV. I do the same thing when listening to podcasts. I do the same thing when I'm when I'm driving. I do the same thing when I'm flying my plane. I do the same thing when I'm performing heart surgery. I'm checking my phone. I'm playing a video game on the side. I'm, I'm joking, of course, obviously. those That last one was a joke. When I do heart surgery, I pay very close attention because I'm not trained. And... So you watch the video and it takes like 20, 25, 30 minutes for the first go through and you still don't have a sense of how to play the thing. I don't understand why you would want to spend your time that way. Well, usually I don't, I don't watch the entire video. Usually some of the very good creators just do a quick little overview of how a turn works and how victory points are are accumulated and then they go on to more in depth and usually that's where I stop and then now ah. I've got how, how a turn plays out and then I read the book. I see, I see. Okay, so yeah, that I would absolutely happily concede to get a sort of bird's eye view, a 30,000 foot view of how a turn works. This is the broad gist. I agree with you that rule books should do more of that. Uh, very often it could be helpful to be like, here's the broad overall goal. Let me try to condense it down for you before you then get into the full rule book. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you that that could be helpful. This is my. This is going to be my argument. My argument is that rule books are getting worse. And I think the videos yeah. are part of that problem. I think that the fact that there's so many third party, uh, communities out there, there's like, uh, you know, the forums where all their rules problems are fixed. There is all these creators that do videos. There's now an app out there that will teach you the game. There's so many different ways that people can learn the rules that the designers and producers are just, uh, sorry, the designers and the publishers have just gotten lazy and either they put out an incomplete rule book or they just don't care anymore because, oh, it'll be fixed later by the community at large. Well, Walker, having gone through many an Avalon Hill, Don Greenwood edited rulebook, I can assure you there have always been terrible rulebooks and there have always been deeply, deeply, deeply lazy rules writers. <laughs> <laughs> let me assure you of that. But let me, let me go on to what I actually have a problem with in terms of videos becoming the standard. Because, look, again, having access to multiple different tools is a great thing. Different people learn in different ways. But here are some of the shortcomings I think with videos now becoming the norm and the standard, which it definitely has become in our group. For one thing, uh, videos are not reference works. You have no ability to look anything up if you have learned primarily through a rules teaching video. And as a result, when it comes time to actually playing the game, especially for the first time, but often for the fifth, sixth, seventh time, 
if you don't know what the rule is or you don't remember, if you don't have familiarity with the rules text, if that's not how you learned it, you're not going to be able to find the answer. Or at least it will grind the game to a halt because it takes you much, much longer to find the answer than if you learned it for the first time through the rulebook. And the other problem I've seen as well is that uh, in the Kickstarter world, these people are rushing. They pay these creators to get these how-to videos done because it gets the game out there more. And by the time the Kickstarter actually finishes, the rules change. So now this how-to video is out there explaining the incorrect rules to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I miss, and... And, and I have to admit, I'm going to admit my ignorance here perfectly. I am not as up to date with a lot of the video rules content creators as I should be. Like, I don't have a lot of experience with Rodney Smith. I don't have a lot of experience with Paul Grogan. Certainly not in the past few years. But what I fear is that the contents and structure, the context and structure of rules explanations are more and more being determined by them rather than the creators themselves. Right? It's a sort of homogenizing influence. When, when so much of the community is getting the rules explanation from a, a, an increasingly narrow group of very authoritative uh, professional rules explainers, uh, there's no ability for the author of the game to set up their own architectonic. And I'm sorry to use that word, but an architectonic is a sort of a structure of ideas. And some games need to be explained in different ways. And sometimes it is better for the author to be able to set their own terms. And I, I'm very nervous when any time that editorial control is taken out of their hands. Just as an example, take an example. Uh, two, my two favorite games of the past year were Cosmic Frog and Beyond the Sun, right? And these are two very different games with two very different rule books. And the, the rule books, although I have some complaints about the rule book of Beyond the Sun, which I'm going to get to in a moment, they both do a very good job of setting expectations by virtue of the structure of the rulebook that I, I don't know that a video rules explanation could match. For example, the rulebook for Cosmic Frog begins with a full page of world building of characters that don't show up in the game at all. And again, this is kind of being introduced into the mad world of Jim Felly. And then you get this explanation of, like, frog digestive systems. And you get this in-depth explanation of what it is to be in your gullet and how you disgorge and all the other flavor bits that I wouldn't want anyone other than Jim Felly to explain that world to me, quite frankly. Beyond the Sun, on the other hand, says a couple of words about interstellar colonization and expansion. And then they're like, all right, here's, here's some icons for you. Which is fine, and that's great, and I think different games need to be presented in different ways, and I respect that Jim Felly and Dennis Chan, with different views of the world and different views of games, or whoever, whichever editors assist them, it's almost never a one-person show, but you get my point. I do not appreciate that being taken over by anyone else. And then you also lose games like uh, Dungeon, Dungeon Lords and or Space Alert, where such a fantastic job is done in the rulebook where it creates this story and and brings you into this world through the way the rulebook is written, you will not get anywhere close with a video explanation. Those are perfect examples. Thank you. Similarly, there are a whole bunch of rules introduction techniques that you cannot do in a, a video explanation, or at least not that's traditionally done in a video explanation. You can't do programmed instruction. Now, granted, programmed instruction is often done badly, but I thought it was done pretty well in Magic Realm and Upfront and Gunslinger. Granted, these are somewhat older titles, uh, but you can't do that in, in, in video systems, at least not the ones that I've seen. You can't do designer's notes. You can't insert quotes. When I think of the best, the best rule book that I've ever read in terms of clarity, it's still Combat Commander Europe, rest in peace, Chad Jensen. And one of the many great things about Combat Commander Europe is as a reference document, it was peerless. I always knew where to find exactly what I needed to find. Can't get that in the video. Had these lovely little quotes from historical personages. Can't get that in the video. It had, you know, it had lovely little illustrated diagrammatic examples of play. Those you can get in the video. Admittedly, there's some lots of slick stuff that's been going on. But I miss all that stuff. You know, illustrations and game art and all that, all the ability to set a world. A rule book is an opportunity to build a world for the people that are about to play it. Whether it's a mechanical exercise like a Euro or whether it's a, a more fleshed out world like in Cosmic Frog. And I, I just don't get that same impact from a video. I never do. The other thing that, that some videos do a great job of putting, you know, timestamps in so you can go back and forth. But still, if, if they mention 
a rule later on in the video and you say, Oh, I must have missed that part. There's no way to easily click back and, and re, you know, re see that part of the video. Whereas if you're reading the rule book, it's like, okay, they used what keyword? What did that mean again? You can easily flip back and just reread and said, Oh, yeah, okay. Now I understand what they mean and then continue reading. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, though, that, that kind of leans a little bit more into this is how I like to process information, but you're right that there's a usability concern there. I'm also a little bit concerned about the influence of the market, although this, again, is just a function of people's preferences working themselves out. There, I, I see a, a number of people comment on, on board game social media or in fora that they would never want to buy a game that didn't have a rules explanation by you know their list of preferred uh, video creators. And I respect that. That's fine. That's their prerogative. Uh, but I hope that that doesn't unfairly prejudice smaller content creators. I don't know if those are the kind of people that might be apt to go find the more smaller niche game, like the Holland Spiel title that's really interesting or what have you, you know, just to pick a publisher out, out of random. I don't know if they would ever be inclined to go do that, but I, I have a background concern that maybe it's it's helping to freeze out smaller publishing houses. I don't know. So I did have a few different points. I had... I had a bunch of stuff like why rule books are bad, but sock it to me. This is done in a different direction. Well, we stuff that we talked about just Kickstarter problems, like it's it's was rushed to print or just didn't mm. get finished properly, and and the fact that sometimes uh, these rule books are are in a sort of playtest bubble, right? Where where they play the game over and over again. It's changed so many times, and it's just it's just not right. I will freely concede. And here's, here's the thing about comparing different media, right? And by media, I mean different different media of rules explanation. I will freely concede that a rulebook that is borderline incomprehensible is going to be vastly eclipsed by a slick, well-done video where the, the someone who takes it professionally, like a Paul Grogan, like a Rodney Smith, who takes the time to internalize a rule system before they then regurgitate it out in the best possible way to the, to the viewing audience. But I don't think that that's a legit comparison, and I don't think it's a, it's a fair argument. Not that you were making it. Because it's not fair to compare the worst of a format to the best of, of, an, of a different format. Because, let me tell you, and this is, again, these are arguments that I wouldn't make because I think that they're, they're rhetorically unfair. There are tons of video rules explanation that are really, really bad. They're halting. They're repetitive in a bad way. They're riddled with rules errors. If you go onto YouTube and just find a random rules explanation for a game, the odds are excellent that it's going to have some serious, uncorrected errors in it. And that's why I'm not going to compare, you know, the best against uh, the best of one against the worst of another because it would be unfair. And the other advantage I see to videos is I have this problem, and maybe other people have it. There's a difference between having a physical rule book in front of you and looking at a screen. I find looking at a physical rule book much more appealing and much easier to use. So, therefore, if there's only the digital version of a rule book available, then I just find watching the video a lot easier. That's fair. But isn't that exactly like I was talking about, comparing the worst of something against the best of something else? True, true, true. And the, well, then the other things is sometimes the people don't have access maybe they just don't know how to access the rule books like we do right maybe they just have not been to board game oh sure and, and watching watching these rules explanations is a way to get them into the hobby or into that game and it's not only in a lot of cases not only just the rules explanation but sometimes they're seen as as a review or sort of an introduction to the game as well you're absolutely right and i i shouldn't again i, I shouldn't be crapping on how other people learn things and this is absolutely a way to make games explanation more accessible to people but i'll tell you what i'm concerned about and quite frankly i'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't happened already because we've seen this in lots of other areas of consumer goods i'm very surprised that we have not yet seen a game with a conventional rule book ship with nothing but a qr code inside right so go and find the pdf or go and we haven't seen this we have 100 seen this where xcom xcom the board game i said with a traditional rule book Sorry, sorry, sorry. Because XCOM, XCOM, I, I was thinking about XCOM when I was talking about it, but XCOM, correct me if I'm wrong, I still haven't played, has a sort of a, a digital tutorial that teaches you how to play the game, right? It does. Like, the, you're not expected to learn the game from a rulebook at all when it comes to XCOM, which I suppose is just another subsection of what's going on. I'm just surprised that it hasn't happened with, again, like like a game like Beyond the Sun or Cosmic Frog or... or um, or Bonfire, or City of the Big Shoulders, or whatever, that said, oh, well, you know, 
Go go read it online. Here, here's here's a QR link to Rodney Smith, and here's a QR link to the PDF on our website. That'll be enough. I'm surprised we haven't seen that yet. That's all. It's it's soon to soon to come. I'm sure. It's probably and the inevitable. other thing. We, oh wait, no, sorry, thing, sorry, sorry. Keyforge, Keyforge pulled that crap on us. Keyforge did exactly really? that. Ooh, yeah, it had. So it did. This is another pet peeve of mine. It had the fantasy flight learn to play document, and then the full rules reference, right? And the full rules reference where you looked up all the keywords and all that other kind of stuff. And one of those was in the starter box, and the other one was go get it from the website. I Sorry, I, I stand corrected by myself. It has happened in my memory, and it is nonsense. And the other thing I don't think we've talked about is just we consume a lot of rule books, and some people this is their first time, and they might be unsure on how to present the rules to their to their family or their group. So the whole family can sit and watch this video or you can link it to your friends and say, we're going to try this board game thing. Here's a video on how to play. And I think that's a much better way to, you know, introduce people who have never done this at all before to the hobby. It's true. I guess I am being a gatekeeper after all. You're right. I just look, part of it is just my enthusiasm for the printed word. And I respect the fact that despite that, you know, more and more people consume novels digitally and more and more people consume even comics digitally and things like that. And I just really still like sitting down with a printed rule book and being able to appreciate that. And I just want to give a shout out to a company that I often give trouble to. And that is the extent to which Stonemeyer Games has stood behind their Scythe omnibus rule book, right? There were a couple of misprints. And so they're shipping out free replacements to everybody that bought that thing. And it's just a lovely little throwback to the days of having a nice omnibus, everything in one place reference work. It just makes me happy. Yeah. When you talked about that, it sort of pushed me back into the old games workshop mode where they would print erratas in the White Dwarf magazine and you would actually either (laughs) photocopy them or you'd cut them right out. They would make them the right shape and size that they would fit right into the rule book. So you'd like paste it or tape it over the parts and it would fix the rule books. And, and I thought that was amazing. And you don't even see that at all any, anymore. It's true. Instead of what you have are living rules documents. And part of that, that's a, that's a, that's a related problem where especially, this is especially true with war games. I love GMT. I love them to bits, but honestly, sometimes their editorial oversight is borderline non-existent on a lot of their pro- projects. It's kind of like the day one patch in video games you know, you get the game, you get the rule book, you have it on launch day, and you know that there's a living rules document already with all the errata and all the all the other problems. And it makes me a little disappointed. Now, sometimes for their more popular titles, you can then get a sort of second edition upgrade pack with the up-to-date rules that hopefully at that point are complete. They're going to be doing that for uh, Cataclysm coming up, and I, I very much want to, to do that because I still want to try Cataclysm, but I've always been put off because the living rules were in a bit of a state of flux. But that's a, that's a related issue, uh, entire, and I cannot blame video for that. That's just a, a set of bad habits that war gamers tend to have. Yeah, like and you shout out to to Stonewire Games for reprinting a whole bit, and Mythic Games is doing the same thing with Reichbusters. I, I don't mm-hmm. want to you know praise them too much until I have it in hand. But right. according to them, it's being shipped out to everyone with all sorts of updated cards. And I just wish more companies did that because it's all well and good to say, oh, well, here's, you know, version 2.6 with all the fixed rules at this website, you know. Yeah. And that's, you know, even if you've learned that this even exists and then now you got to find out anyway. Yeah, especially since, and let's be fair, a lot of companies, not specifically Mythic and not specifically Stonemaier or anyone else, but a lot of companies are like, this is analog entertainment. Get away from screens, blah, blah, blah. Time with your family, physical objects, old school, analog, sort of gritty, kind of whatever. All the all, Pick whatever set of modifiers you want. You don't then get to say, oh, well, this game only works if you check the up-to-date errata on our website. I'm sorry. There's still part of, part of what appeals to me in board gaming is there's this box, and what I need is inside the box, and the rest of the world can go leave me alone because this box is a universe unto itself. I still get a certain appeal out of that, and the death of the rulebook, unfortunately, would be the death of that. Finally, for me, I'm sure we've we've talked about FFG slowly disappearing. I'm sure that's filling yourself a little bit of glee because now you don't have to worry about you know this the multiple rulebook system anymore. Yeah, I'm, I, it looked for a while that that was going to sort of be the default, and you still see it. Uh, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion has that, and as I've been trying to reference, you know, remind myself about how Gloomhaven works and or 
brush up on the differences between Jaws of the Lion and normal Gloomhaven, I sometimes find it difficult because I'm paging through these different documents and one of them is in program instruction and one of them is a reference document. For a while, it looked like that was going to become the industry standard. I'm very, very glad that it didn't seem to catch on. In closing, I would like to apologize. I wanted to avoid gatekeeper language, but Walker, in his gentle but nonetheless corrective way, has pointed out that I was effectively being a gatekeeper for people who are new to the hobby and are not accustomed to processing rulebooks. And I really, I really am ashamed, but I still want my rulebooks. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.